Welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Hello and welcome to our Component Connection podcast. I'm your host, Jess Lowson. With me today is Margaret Whelan. Margaret is the CEO and founder of Whelan Advisory, LLC, a boutique investment bank dedicated to providing a highly tailored level of service to housing companies that are interested in raising capital or pursuing an M&A transaction. Margaret is passionate about her opportunities for innovation across the U.S. construction industry. Recently, her firm has advised several of the more innovative companies in the industry. That includes Integra, Rainey, Truemark, ResiBuilt, and Innovative Construction Group. She is frequently featured as a keynote speaker on this topic at industry events. Margaret also serves on four boards, Mattamy Homes, the largest private home builder in North America, PropTech Acquisition Group, John Burns Real Estate Consulting, and the Housing Innovation Alliance. Prior to forming Whelan Advisory in 2014, Margaret worked for 20 years on Wall Street. She lives in New York with her husband and four children. I'd like to welcome her to our Component Connection podcast. Good morning, Jess. Thanks. Yes, thank you for, for sharing some time with us. You've got a great perspective on a, a lot of things in construction, and I wanted to get your general thoughts on component manufacturing as an industry, kind of how it compares to the rest of the construction industry with regards to innovation. Sure. So yeah, I have a, a unique perspective, I guess, in that I have worked with both home builders and LBM dealers, construction companies for my whole career, which is 25 years and, and, and more at this point, um, and have always worked in global positions. So working with companies overseas and in the US. And in terms of what's happening with components, it's great to see an acceleration in the availability of components, how many of these companies are pivoting towards being solution oriented versus commodity oriented. I think Louisiana Pacific is a big uh, public company has done a terrific job of that. And there is an awful lot of innovation in our industry right now because there's a lot of interest and in capital that's coming in both in the U.S. and overseas. The capital, in terms of how I think about it, there are two buckets. It's either property technology or construction technology. With the prop tech side, it tends to be how we interact with the consumer and how we can facilitate better interactions with the consumer, whether it's a multifamily building, a single family builder. Today, for example, I believe we've seen a, an increase in the digitalization of our industry that's really tremendous. It's been accelerated to the point that I would say we've seen more progress in the last eight weeks than in the last eight years. But consumers can go in and see houses now on demand. They can make an appointment. They can use a robot to have them tour the house as opposed to a salesperson, all because we're COVID-minded and being focused on uh, safety and health. Yeah, I guess you hear a lot about the prop tech, you know, that gets the headlines and, and whatnot. Then you kind of mentioned the construction technology portion of it too. What is it that you're seeing coming out of that? Is there much for, for progress being happening there? Yes, very much so. And part of it is being consumer driven. It's an orientation and a focus on well buildings, healthy buildings, healthy air, circulatory, um, more energy efficient, uh, higher thermal envelope. And all of that was happening before the last two months, before this pandemic. And then also more durable materials because of hurricanes, fires in different parts of the country. And the, the third part would have been the automation and the offsite. And so in terms of automation, we're leveraging the availability of artificial intelligence. It's been very helpful in other industries, everything from robotics through uh, better use of software, companies like Procore. And software, in my mind, and the construction technology side really increases and enhances the communication because we have an industry that is uh, 
so B2B oriented. There's so many players. There's so many stages in the process. The baton is gets passed on and on. Like in a relay race, it's actually a quite unique industry. And that's why McKinsey and some of the other uh, experts have said that our industry is really not investing enough in technology. In fact, that we are decelerating. I think when they put out their report, The Path to Productivity, three years ago, it really defined what's been an industry issue that all of us knew about already, which is that we are not adding enough value for the consumer. We're not investing enough in automation. And McKinsey put us in the bottom of the fourth quartile. In fact, we were right behind agriculture and farming, which is just showing you there's a lot of opportunity. That's why so much capital is coming in and new ideas are always going to be well received. Yeah, that's definitely the case that, you know, I, th- I think everybody recognizes that there's a ton of opportunity and, and part of that's getting out of the kind of the confines of the way we've always done it. And I guess to just kind of ask, you know, your opinion or, you know, if you were to put your visionary hat on for a second, how would you describe the ideal structural framing solution or, or industry, if you would? I love that question, Jess. And I think that um, when I worked with Antecra, they hired my team about five years ago to get them ready for their fundraise as they were moving from Europe over to the U.S. And one of the things that they were focused on was building every house twice. So you're doing it first in 3D, you're very design oriented, you're rationalizing the plans, removing the waste, working with the architects, the engineers or designers, even the inspectors in some cases to really get that right. And it's funny because I wear two hats when I work as an advisor on fundraising and M&A. And the first hat is with the home builders, the second is with the construction companies. Now the home builders will point the finger at their salespeople and say, well, the salespeople are to blame. They offer too many options and upgrades and elevations and all of that is more choice that the consumer appreciates, but that's harder to build. And then the dealers will also blame, or the manufacturers, the mills will also blame the salespeople saying they're offering too many choices to the builders that facilitate too much choice for the consumer. So how do we tighten all that up? It's by starting with the design. And I love the idea of getting the file right in terms of the design online, then getting it to the factory, then getting it to the field. If you have full collaboration through the life cycle, that's where the efficiency comes in. It takes days out of the cycle. It takes materials, waste, labor waste out of the cycle. And so that, I guess, is in a nutshell, just getting the design right. I do feel like the builders are starting to realize as they see businesses like Antecra, one of the reasons Pulte bought ICG which was a transaction we worked on earlier this year, it's because they see that in some cases they're uh, being spec, their homes are built, are being spec for materials that may or may not make it to the job site. Uh, the modular industry is much tighter in terms of raw material, what they pay for and what they use. They see a big dumpster in front of every single family home. It's so depressing in the 21st century that up to a third of the materials end up in the dumpster. And that, that statistic came from the National Framing Council a couple of years ago. So I think the opportunity to take waste out of the cycle, days out of the cycle, offer a really high quality, affordable home. That's my idea of an ideal business model because then it addresses the big pressing issues in our industry. Well, housing isn't affordable. Well, it might be affordable if we didn't put so much of the material we pay for in a dumpster or so much of the labor wasn't reworked. Do we really have a labor shortage or lack of skilled labor when we're doing everything two or three times? The folks at Meritage Homes, which is a very uh, progressive company relative to their peers, have actually got ahead of R&D, which most of the home builders do not. But last year they did a um, 
picture phase in front of some of their homes. There were time-lapse photographs every day, and they realized that on a 100-plus day cycle, more than 50% of the days there was never anybody in the house. And so that's the opportunity, right? It's all the capital that's tied up in that house as it's waiting to be built, the risk of weather delays, uh, waste, theft, all of that gets tightened up to the benefit of the consumer. Yeah, I wanted to dive into one of the parts that you said there was the uh, kind of the construction file or, you know, the computerization of it, uh, whether it's BIM or, or some other type of, of file there. Construction typically has been very uh, fragmented from amongst the supply chain. And do you see that where people are going to try to do some finger pointing with, within the supply chain if there's a mistake? Or do you see that the national home builders are going to try to take ownership of that and have more of a holistic approach, if you will? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask there? Yes. So are the home builders going to be a part of the solution? Are they going to collaborate? Well, you know, it's funny because we all use this word home builders. The reality is these companies we're referring to, we all know who they are. They don't build houses. They don't know how to build houses. They don't have toolkits, right? They facilitate the construction with 20, 30 subs coming in, but really they're land speculators who connect with the consumer. And the consumer is telling them today and for the last decade, they want smaller homes, simpler homes, more affordable homes. So you do see that very much so. Horton has a very simple product. They're the biggest by volume in the country. Pulte is is actually investing, putting capital risk into innovation, which is terrific because they have a great culture and DNA for innovation, much more so than their peers on the large production builder side. Meritage, as we mentioned earlier, they do a lot on the energy efficiency side. And so, yes, I do, I do think that the builders are going to be uh, collaborative and coming out of this, there's opportunities for them to benefit too. I, I really feel that if their shareholders went to the job sites and saw that the houses were vacant 50% of the time, that they would be stunned. Because that negatively impacts the return on capital, right? And look at NVR as a company that I've studied my whole career because I graduated in 1994 right after the SNL crisis, started my career on Wall Street working with housing companies. NVR was emerging from bankruptcy. They didn't have access to capital to take on the big land development projects and entitlement projects and all the risk and the capital associated with it. So they focused on being a high production home builder. They have factories and they actually build houses. They have exceptional return on capital, incredible multiple of value on their stock versus all of the other publicly traded home builders. And there's another smaller emerging company called LGI that came public about uh, 10 years ago now with that there was eight or nine home builder IPOs. We worked on most of them. But uh, LGI has a totally different business model too, very simple fast build product uh, without uh, the complexity. And so I do think there are benefits to it. I do think uh, you know, we're sitting here today on April 30th, you and I, Jess, and eight weeks into the shutdown, the, the pandemic, and you have to look for the green shoots. You have to look for the opportunity that comes out of every crisis. And I do believe one of those is that as an industry, we'll collaborate more. Yeah, we can, we can definitely hope so. And component manufacturers, you know, they're very lean you know, oriented and they understand that their improvement is only as good as their next bottleneck. And I guess that's kind of setting up my next question is the structural framing, you know, industry, the primary focal point for disruption within the single family home construction industry. And what would be the next one beyond that? If, if it is. I believe that 
structural framing is absolutely the most important one because if we go back to getting the file right and getting it to the factory and then getting it out to the job site if we do all of that well that house is going to be weatherproofed faster the level of precision is going to be huge it's going to facilitate more efficiency with all the subs they know that the house is actually built on time even with the inspectors the inspectors are really embracing antecra and icg and some of these businesses because it's more efficient for them to work it through um and so once you get that right, it's also such a big part of the cost. The lumber itself is a commodity. The labor that goes along with the framing, it's such a huge part of the cost. So if we get that right, if we get the house weatherproofed, then you have less delays, you have less waste. So absolutely, I believe that is where we would start and where we would benefit the most. And then looking back at the last few years, you know, probably starting in 2017, there it just seemed like every moment you turned to social media or looked in a trade magazine or, you know, anywhere on the internet, there was a, a steady advancement of, you know, offsite framing and, and that. Has that continued over the last 12 to 16 months here into 2020 and 2019? Or is it kind of plateaued, do you think, in your opinion? Um, well, I guess everything is plateaued right now in 2020. <laughs> but but as I said, I do feel like the you know the green shoots are coming. We'll see the benefits of these business models. What's interesting for me is um, you know I, I look at the stages of our business and some of the client representation. So when we uh, were engaged by Integra, I think that was in 2017, they had another banker who had been trying to find them capital for over a year, U.S. based but unsuccessful. I met Jerry at a conference and he and I are both from Ireland. We both have the same degree and he wanted to have a drink and anyone who knows Jerry, he loves to talk. And so I said, sure, let's have a cocktail. And then I'm going to the airport. I've got a red eye because the conference is in LA. I live in New York. So he insisted on driving me to the airport so we can keep talking. But the hotel that we had, we were at for the conference was two hours from the airport. So four hours later, I, I, um, I, I was taking him on as a client. You know, I wasn't going to get on the the plane without accepting the mandate. And what was interesting about it is that I really had to put a lot of time into it. I think because I'm from Europe and because I've always had these global roles and I've spent so much time in China and Japan and Dubai and worked with manufacturers all over the world, I really understood the benefits of it. And altruistically, as a fellow patriot from Ireland, I, want, I wanted to help them to be successful where others had failed. But it was not easy. And, and so many of the calls we were making, in particular to the capital, to the investors, there was not interested. It was a startup. It was a team that was coming from overseas. How could they get it right? How could they do better than anyone who's here locally? And in particular, than folks who had failed. But the opportunity with Louisiana Pacific was there. And it was such a great fit because, of course, LP has a global footprint, too. And Jerry and his brother Gary started in Tecker in the U.S., but they had worked for years with their father in Ireland, and his business in the U.K. had been a customer of LPs. So that came together very quickly. I think when you refer to all the social media, we have to give Jerry credit. I guess more than half of it was probably coming from him. You know, he's very vocal about what he wanted to do. He's now been successful. The builders have really embraced that offering. And so I think that it is going to change the industry. And what I have found um, based on conversations I've had with clients of ours, private home builders that are also customers of Integra, is that when they see how precise and how efficient the construction is, they just can't go backwards. They, they, all they want from him is more. They want another factory. They want him to move with them into other markets. And so um, 
I do think that there has been a lot of talk, but there's also been a lot of momentum. That's great. There's a lot of great nuggets there. Uh, you know, I'm kind of curious if Jerry would have bought the uh, seat next to you on your plane ride. Have you not uh, been successful prior to that? <laughs> we, we might have been driving coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe describe some of the transactions you've worked on. Maybe continue with the Integra description or maybe ICG is a more established company more recently. Yeah. Yeah, and a member of the SBCA. Uh, sure. So Integra was unique because it was a startup and our company tends to work with companies that have about $10 million in EBITDA as a base level. It varies a little bit. Uh, but when I started the business in 2014, I left JP Morgan, where I'd been the head of the home building investment banking group for years. And that was after when I left in 2014, it was after 20 years from graduation, working on Wall Street, had worked with so many smart people. And I had this vision for my business, which was that I would offer a higher level of service to a smaller group of clients to really get in and understand their business and how to maximize the value. And when you take the time and invest in the investment positioning, then these companies are easier to sell or what you're offering is easier to raise capital for. So that definitely proved fruitful with um and Tecra, we worked with Buddy Rainey at RCI for a couple of years too. And then we went on to work with uh, with ICG, with Ryan Moline. And I think Ryan and his brother, fascinating, uh, Ryan and Andy, because they're so young. You know, they're in their late 30s. Now they're part of a big national organization with public company stock, both publicly traded debt and equity. So essentially permanent capital and a, a captive audience with their customers. So when you asked earlier, are builders embracing this? Yes, I think they are absolutely embracing it. They're putting uh, their capital at risk. And so we have a huge Rolodex of investors, both in the U.S. and globally. We work with home building and construction companies. We run the same process. It's a very simple and effective process, which is three steps. The first is investment positioning with our client, getting them ready to sell, really understanding their business, making sure they have good financials behind them, quality of earnings report if it's needed. Then we go out and prepare for a transaction by introducing them to as many folks as are interested in our Rolodex. And then we work with them and their attorneys on pricing and closing the deal. Um, so we, we do that actively. And what I found, I've been working with Sumitomo for the last couple of years, which is one of the companies out of Japan that has bought half a dozen of the home building companies here in the US. And then we worked with Daiwa House earlier this year, we were representing the seller Trumark Homes in California, which is the largest private builder in California. And what I found with the, the trend with the Japanese is that even though there is all of this talk about them putting money into the U.S. and buying construction companies and potentially bringing the Japanese efficiency over here, there's not been so much of that, unfortunately. I think they're more inclined to leave the builders to continue to operate the way they do. But there are other folks in our industry that are closer to home, like Clayton, that we've also worked with uh, that have bought maybe eight or 10 home builders in the last decade, including a couple that had factories. And now Clayton is actually opening some of their own offsite solutions factories. So that's going to be interesting. I definitely think they're one to watch. Yeah, I know Clayton has definitely uh, gained the eye of many a component manufacturer, just kind of curious what their long-term intent is. Um, you know, and, and I guess to that point, I've listened to you speak a number of times and you, you talk often of other industries you know, streamlining their supply chain between the manufacturers and, and consumers. And I guess, you know, kind of similar to the Clayton model, but are there similar efforts in the construction industry that would be an opportunity or a threat for component manufacturers to, to try to participate in? 
I think the uh, component, everyone in our supply chain is vulnerable right now. And the reason is that we have not innovated, we, we have not invested, and essentially today versus 25 years ago, we have decreased the value in the offering. That's what the McKinsey Report essentially is saying by not investing in our businesses. And so when you look at industries that have been completely disrupted in the last 15, 20 years, it's all about getting directly B2C getting to the consumer. So look at Amazon and how they've disrupted the retail industry. And everyone said, well, going to the mall is an experience. Consumers love experience. Actually, it turns out consumers prefer uh, convenience and Amazon has taken over. The taxi cab, the yellow cab industry, the black car industry has been completely destroyed by Uber. Hotels are, are losing share to Airbnb. What's common about all of those business models is listening to the consumer, understanding the consumer, simplifying and convenient the access of their products to the consumer. So it's very high value. In our industry, as we talked about earlier, Jesse, it's B to B to B to B because it's a relay race. And there's so many ways that these houses can get delayed. The construction can go off track, that the consumer is paying for waste that they don't necessarily need to be paying for. So Clayton is a financing company. They finance mobile homes. They are a manufacturer of both modular and HUD code houses around the country. Kevin Clayton is a great friend to our industry and to the consumer. He's done a lot of work to promote with Ben Carson and HUD to promote financing availability and, and better standards around mod versus HUD code so we can deliver mod nationally as opposed to only in states relative to the, uh, the inspection process. So I do believe that modular is the way to go. And so Modular doesn't have to be mobile. It doesn't have to be low end. And there's some great startups in particular coming out of California that are addressing this. And I'm not talking about the Antacras or the Kateras because what they're doing is is construction technology. I'm talking about a fully finished product. I think... um, you know, a good analogy is Nike. They make sneakers. It's a very simple product relative to building homes or delivering materials, but they design the sneakers and then the manufacturing, the factory part of that is a commodity. And that's something that you could see in our industry if you have companies that can design a product where there's demand, any factory can build it. And actually, I think a fantastic example of that that's relevant to Clayton and their peers on the modular side is these accessory dwelling units that are popping up all over the country. And it was my biggest takeaway from the Builder Show in January was um, what Clayton Homes has been doing where they have extra capacity in some of their factories, these neat little ADUs. And they're up to a thousand square feet. You put them in your yard, essentially, you hook them up to the utilities. And in some cases, they're for income, you can use them for Airbnb, you can use them for a family member, uh, household staff, like a nanny or housekeeper. Um, In some cases, folks, families are downsizing into them, empty nesters and renting out their bigger home. And of course, now with the focus on uh, distancing, they're going to be even more in demand. So there you have a product that can be ordered very quickly, very efficiently online and delivered uh, straight to the home, straight to the consumer. So I think that's the big risk to our industry. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. And to kind of, I guess, talk a little bit more about components specifically throughout our industry, they're largely viewed as a value-added product when compared to the the commodity products like lumber and drywall that most LBM operations will offer. You know, how can component manufacturers continue to add value to their customers 
and make it less about the bottom dollar, if you will. Yes. Well, look, the beauty of those business to consumer models is they're listening to the consumer, they're capturing the dollars of the consumer, but also the gross profit, they're capturing margin. And so any of these components type companies are starting to pivot uh, away from just being lumber from the commodity or already adding a huge amount of value. And you know, I listened to a couple of your recent podcasts. Barry Dixon did a great job of describing the history. His father started the business and how he's taken it and his design orientation at Apex. And then you have um, uh, Gene and Rob from Annandale, the same thing, second generation, taking it to the next level with the, the trust factories and the components. So then the question is, what's next? I think it's the kit. It's not just the wall panels or the roof truss or the floor cassette. It's the whole thing. I think if needed, it is uh, facilitating the labor, owning the labor, because the framer that's required or the installer for these full kits needs to get used to a mindset that involves installing the kit with a mallet and not a saw. <laughs> Otherwise, the, the precision goes out the window. There are no extra pieces laying around. Um, so when you get that right, you have the kit versus the components. Um, you facilitate the labor, you train the labor, whatever that is. Do you pre-cut for MEP, uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing? Do you include MEP? Do you pour the slab or the foundation the way they do at Ramey? Um what was interesting, a couple of years, KB Home was doing the show house for the Builder Show. I think that was in 29, was it 2018 or 2019. But Antecra drove their kit over from Northern California, found their factory. And one thing that was interesting to me, an add-on was insulated wall panel. It was a cool firm product that comes out of Europe. And so essentially the value add for the components is just continuing to push uh the size of the kit, reducing the friction, the number of subs for each house on behalf of the home builder. I think that's where they can really capture more margin because it is a full um, package that they're offering. And um, really, how much can they include but maintain open frame or open panel, uh, again, from the perspective of whoever's going to be inspecting the house? Because when you get to closed panel, it's different. So I think... It varies around the country. I think you have some members and, and there are lots of great folks in our industry who are doing this quietly. They're not talking. They're not on LinkedIn all day long talking about it. They're actually doing it and generating profits. But let's reinvest some of that profit because this is really a, a big opportunity and it's ours to lose. Yeah. And that reinvestment of the profits segues nicely into my next question. You know, when you're reviewing a firm, you know, independent of the industry, how important is for you to see a commitment to R&D and innovation, whether it's a just as a culture or as a line item on their budget or their income statement? Well, if it was a major priority for me, I would have no clients, right? Because this is an industry that does not value uh, R&D. You don't have a head of innovation in most of the companies. It's more, uh, we're pirates versus pioneers, you know, we're just, we're following along. But um, uh, there are a lot of industries where they would spend five to 10% of sales on marketing or R&D, um, bringing new products to the market, understanding the consumer. And ours is probably a fraction of that, maybe 100 basis points. So I think that what I focus on 
for me, and I feel like the value I bring to my clients as their investment banker is my curiosity and the amount of time I spend on the investment positioning to understand their business. And I think that's why we end up working for clients and successfully closing transactions where others might have failed because we really take the time to understand the investment thesis and then position it well for buyers. And in doing that, our clients are less vulnerable because it's complicated selling your company or raising money. It can be scary, but there's so much value to these long-term partnerships. And like I said, Pulte, Louisiana Pacific, two of the buyers that we worked with recently, um, permanent capital, permanent debt, permanent equity, big credit facilities, customers, the amount of information flow and collaboration there is really exciting. And I guess to kind of follow up on that for a component manufacturer that might be intrigued by the idea of doing some R&D or something, would they necessarily have to do that independently or could they partner you know, with their a customer or a supplier somewhere in the supply chain to, to try to benefit from that? I think there's a huge benefit to partnering with the customer to coming to them and saying, look, the tide is out. The productivity is down. Sales are down in the last eight weeks. Let's figure out what can we do here to be more efficient, to take permanent cost and waste and days and labor out of the cycle. And, and let's do it together. Let's co-invest. It's interesting because on the home building side, many of the home builders started out in titling or developing land. And they will have huge master plans, almost small cities, tens of thousands of lots, and they will share those master plans with other builders, yet they have not found a way to collaborate on the factory side. And I do think we're going to start to see more of that going forward. But whoever you partner with needs to be long-term focused because this is not easy. If it was easy, it would have been done across the country. But the uh, the standards, the inspections, everything is different around the country that price of the houses, the cost of the land relative to the cost of the house. And so you have to prioritize all of that and get a partner who's in it for the long term. That's that's great advice. Um, I want to talk a little bit now about your your famous description of the construction industry. And within that, there's a one portion of it that is stale, which you allude to a lot of the people, you know, for better, for worse, of being stale. And I guess talking through that, what steps can companies, if you will, take to, to avoid being stale? Yes. Well, for anyone who's listening who's not aware of that quote, um, I've always been a thought leader in our industry because I'm very curious. And because of that, people invite me to speak at conferences, to do keynote presentations, to come and address their board of directors when they're thinking about the opportunity for innovation or the risk of disruption. And what I have found in this lonely spot, being one of very few women who are making these presentations as I'm looking out to an audience, sometimes thousands of people, and it's a bunch of all white guys. And so I call it PMS, pale, male, stale. I'm not objecting to pale or male, but it's not okay to be stale, right? And, and it's a choice. If there's so much information available, listen to the podcast, join these or industry organizations, there's so much collaboration, so much generosity. You know, with a group of my peers, we started a group about five years ago called the Housing Innovation Alliance, and I'm on the advisory board there. We have great conferences. In fact, I think you joined us last week, Jess. I moderated a panel about uh, innovation. But the opportunity is huge. The availability of the information is huge. I've been over to Europe. I've been all over Asia, the Middle East, I'll just call people and say, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing. Would you mind if I come over for a tour? And they say, yes, we would love that. And so there's so much information available. And I read a ton. I listen to a lot of books because I travel so much. And one of the books that was given to me when I was graduating from university 
26 years ago was the seven habits of highly effective people. And one of those, the seventh one is to sharpen the saw, which is really a pun for our industry. But how do we keep thinking about learning and being proactive? Um, For me personally, I'm 47. And it's interesting because amongst my peers, I'm on several corporate boards, public company boards amongst my peers, I'm probably 20 years younger. But uh, because my career is important to me, I'm a relatively mature mother. So I actually have two, I have twin five-year-olds in kindergarten. So when I pick up my kids from school, people think that I, uh, I'm the grandparent who's visiting. But when I go to these board meetings, people ask me to bring them a coffee because they think I'm working for the, for the host. But um, one thing I have embraced is the millennial mentee. So instead of being a mentor in this kind of funky middle age of 47, I love finding mentees. And a couple of years ago, as I was being invited, uh, like you said, four or five years ago, everyone started talking about innovation in the industry. And I kept getting invited to speak at conferences. And I had this presentation that involved a lot of spreadsheets and different modeling tools. And I hired a marketing team. And this young woman was like, this is absolutely terrible. Nobody would listen to this. No wonder there are no young people in your industry. And so we totally turned it around. And actually, she came up with some of the the funny visuals for PMS. So it's a, it's a long rambling answer, but I really think uh, reaching out to people, asking for help, being vulnerable and, and embracing younger people, that's probably the biggest opportunity. I, I love that whole description and the answer. And I remember the first time that I heard you say it on stage in a room of probably 800, you know, older, whiter, arguably stale or not, gentlemen that all of their shoulders, they just sat back in their, their seats. And it was great to see. I was at the back of the room and it was like, yeah. oh, she's on to something here because one, it's it's very true, but two, it's, you know, it's dead the, on in there. The energy shifts. Yeah. The, yeah. It, it's like a lead balloon. And and actually one of the reasons I did it was I was frustrated a couple of years ago. I had made one of these presentations and a couple of folks in the audience got up and said, you're wrong. We've done it before. It's never going to work. And I just wanted to anticipate <laughs> Boomer yelling at me from the back with this slide. And, and funnily enough, I do get invited back. You know, I spoke at ProSales for the second time this year after making that presentation to them last year. So that was good. That's great. Um, you know, SPCA has been taking some efforts over the last couple of years to, to note women in our industry. And I guess just looking for some advice on how SPCA can bring more women into the industry and how do we become more welcoming to that, you know, one on the industry level and then also on the association level to make them welcoming at our events? Well, I think you are very welcoming. You don't need to be more welcoming. They just need to be there. I am, it's funny for me because I'm a female uh, investment banker in real estate. And so that's, it's a unique position. There are not many of us. And I work in an industry that's incredibly competitive. You're mark to market. Every deal is, you know, you're only as good as your last deal. And what I found throughout my career, because I was recruited out of university, out of a finance program to work on Wall Street and coming from Ireland, I thought I was going to be a bank teller. (laughs) I really had no idea what I was getting myself in for. But 25 years yet later, I've been very happy and, and incredibly successful. And I think it's just when you are interested, curious and capable, and then people acknowledge that they recognize it and they see your your character and your integrity, and they like you, there's good chemistry, they're going to pick you to work on their teams, to work on their deals, to work in their organizations. Now, that works well when you have women in the industry. I was 
coming up, there were very few women ahead of me, although there are a lot more women behind me now in terms of investment banking relative to their maturity as professionals, which is great to see. And I think in our industry, the great thing about including any kind of diversity is that folks will come up to me, young women always come up to me after these presentations, Jess, and say, thank you so much. The first time I've seen a woman at one of our events, I really appreciate it. So let's give any woman, if that's what you're focused on, uh, gender diversity in the room, let's give them the opportunity to be a part of that solution. But I also think that um, if you look at the companies in our industry that are so stale, the boards are so stale, there's so little refreshment. Many of the boards of companies in our industry do not even have one woman. So if you're coming out of university and you're looking, all of that information is available publicly and you're a young woman or a person of color, you're ethnic for whatever reason, you're diverse and you're not seeing that diversity, that's probably not going to be a company you want to work in. So we have to work really hard. I'm a big believer right now in quotas to drive the refreshment, to bring new people into the business. Um, The other thing I would say, though, is we are an industry that is at risk of being disrupted, and you have to have capability. You can only hire 10, so you have to go to the best university if you've got to recruit the best people and really keep them motivated. It's interesting, um, as an industry, you know, we acknowledge four under 40 on the pro sales side, but on the home building side, it's 40 under 40. So if you really care about generational diversity and getting these young people, regardless of gender or ethnicity, into our industry, let's go out and recruit them earlier and promote them and make them a part of the solution, give them a voice. Well, thank you for that answer. I, I appreciate it. I like it. Um, I've just got one final question before we wrap up here. And it's mostly just given how connected you are and you know your, your prominence in the industry, I'm curious to know who the people in in the industry that you pay attention to and who should our listeners add to their radar, whether it's on LinkedIn or they're looking for at conferences and presentations, either, you know, online or in person. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think Jerry McCaughey really sticks his neck out. That's the CEO of Integra and he's incredibly prolific on LinkedIn. Um, he's very generous with sharing his perspective to the point that <laughs> maybe a bit too much sometimes, but he gets the point across. So that's definitely a leader. I think the Housing Innovation Alliance, which I mentioned, it's a volunteer position where a couple of us got together about five years ago and said, how do we collaborate and and really try to address this, both on the construction and the home building side? George Casey is the founder of that group, and he's another one who's just a great, um, wise, incredibly wise person in our industry, generous, passing that perspective along. Um, So that makes sense. And then there's also some younger folks who are starting modular companies that I have been keeping an eye on both in Europe and in the UK that are moving very quickly and raising capital quickly. So there's a good breadth of information available. Um, I don't remember, Jess, if you came to the international or the industrial wood-based conference last year in Boston. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it was a big conference. I uh, attended Two years ago was the first, and I was absolutely fascinated. I paid to attend. I sat in the back. I took tons of notes, and throughout the course of two or three days, they realized I was there and identified me as to do the keynote presentation at this past year's event. But I almost misspoke. It's the Industrial Wood-Based Conference, but when you go to the event, it feels much more like the International (laughs) Wood-Based Construction Conference because there's so many international folks in the room. And what you find when you're listening to people talk about disruption is that you really need a glossary or a thesaurus to understand exactly 
what they're saying, especially from overseas, not just because they're speaking another, another language, but also they're using the words differently, like fabrication, prefab, modular. These all have different uses um, in different contexts. So you have to really understand it. But diversity of thought and curiosity are what are going to get us out of this. There's so much opportunity. That's why so much capital is coming in. And let's take advantage of all of the expertise, the relationships, the goodwill we have in our industry to protect ourselves and to take it to the next level. All right. Well, thank you for that. I wrote down a number of names there that I'm going to have to jump on LinkedIn and follow and, and do some research on. But I appreciate you taking some time, Margaret, to uh, to join us for some insights and joining us on the Component Connection podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for including me. All right. Well, until next time, folks, that's it for today's edition of Component Connection Podcast. We look forward to talking to you the next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SBCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com. 